And uh, as we turn to our teaching time, our friend Tom will read us today's passage. Tom, there Tom, sorry. And it's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is God's word. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry to reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become righteousness of God. Thanks, Tom. Good morning, Sound City. How are we doing? Good? Uh, My name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. If we've not yet had a chance to meet, glad to have you here. We uh, have been, as a church, uh, since the beginning of the year, going through the book of Judges, the Old Testament narrative book, and it's, it's springtime, it's that time of year in the church calendar where Easter is on the horizon. Uh, I know that the icy cold rain this morning probably doesn't reinforce my point, but spring is, spring is here, friends. It's, I, I believe it deep in my heart, and uh, spring, tra- er, spring training is over, and Mariners have opening day tomorrow, and this is their year, okay? Can I get an amen from anybody on that? All right, looking for a few other crazy people as well. So, we as the church are turning our attention to the subject of resurrection. Easter is right around the corner. And, and this year, rather than just only talking about the resurrection on Easter Sunday, we as a church wanted to take a few weeks and talk about the theme, the subject of resurrection from a few different angles. And today we're going to look at it through the angle of resurrection and relationships. We're going to look at how the resurrection of Jesus profoundly shapes and rearranges the way that we relate uh, to each other, the way that we relate to God, the way that we relate even to ourselves. But before we dive into any of that, what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray, and then we'll spend some time uh, unpacking this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this time to reflect on the truth that you do indeed make all things new again in a world um, that is marked in so many ways by death, in a, in a land of death. God, we turn our hope to you. We turn our attention to you. And God, I ask and pray that you'd give all of us uh, soft and teachable hearts right now. We want to grow. We want to be shaped and changed uh, by your word today and by your Holy Spirit. God, for myself, I pray that you would guard my lips. Help me to only teach that which is uh, in line with the truth of your word. And may we all grow as a result of spending time uh, today, God, looking at the scriptures, looking at your word. We pray all of this in the strong and healing name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. 
If you want to think back with me to the earliest days of uh, the Christian church, Jesus has died, Jesus has risen again, and he has ascended into heaven. He's given his disciples a mission to go into all the world and, and share this good news. There's a man named Paul. His name was Saul, and God changed it to Paul. His name was Saul, and he was, um, if you want to think of him, he would be like a modern-day ISIS terrorist who had a specific vendetta against Christians and was authorized by the powers to be to go actually seek them out and either imprison them or kill them. And as he was on a journey to Damascus, God appears to this man, Saul, and uh, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, appears to him, blinds him, knocks him to the ground, and says, uh, Saul, you are going to be my messenger to the Gentiles. You, this Jewish man, are going to go into the whole Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. You're going to tell everybody that the Messiah has come. Redemption is here. And so Paul, Saul, changed the name to Paul. He's committed to that. He goes throughout the entire Gentile world, uh, the known world at the time, planting churches, preaching about the gospel. But there was this part of his heart that always ached, always longed to go back to his people, his Jewish brothers and sisters, to tell them about Jesus, the, the Jewish Messiah, the one who was promised through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the one who was promised in the law of Moses. He wanted to go back and tell them about Jesus. But he spent about 30 years uh, traveling out to the the. the the Gentile world, until finally God says, okay, it's time to go back. He gets to go back to Jerusalem. Some people try to stop him. Don't go back there, Paul. They're waiting to arrest you. They don't like you. You're a turncoat. You're a traitor. You, you used to be defending you know, the orthodox position, and now you've joined this weird Jesus cult, this bizarre Jewish sect. And Paul says, I got to go back. I got to tell him about Jesus. I got to tell him that he died and he rose again. And as expected, he gets locked up. He gets thrown in prison. But what's interesting is he gets thrown in prison and the Roman governor who's in charge of the region of Israel, the region of Judea, takes a particular interest in him. It's a guy named Felix. Uh, Rome, the, the Roman Empire had conquered most of the entire world at this point, And so they would put different governments, governors there to kind of watch over the locals and make sure they stayed in line. And so Felix is this guy. He's actually married to a Jewish woman. And it says he keeps Paul in prison there for two years just so he can go talk to him and ask him about Jesus. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say this, but I get the sense that Paul is maybe a little bit frustrated because here he is, he's in prison. He wants to tell the Jews about Jesus. And who does he spend all this time with? A Gentile Roman pagan king. <laughs> he's telling him about Jesus for two years. So eventually, Felix gets recalled back to uh, Rome. He gets transported somewhere else. A new guy shows up, Festus. And King Festus goes, who in the heck is this weird rabbi guy who's talking about someone that came back to life? That sounds very weird and very Jewishy. You need to go talk to the Jewish king. And so Paul finally gets an audience with the Jewish king, Agrippa. And he's there and he's talking to Agrippa. And he's, he's having this conversation. Agrippa's like, why are you even in prison? And he's like, because I'm talking about Jesus, man. Paraphrase. He said it in Greek, probably. And, and he's, he's in this moment of kind of almost like, you can see like this almost like righteous frustration. He's talking to a group. He's like, look, we knew that this was going to happen. We have the scriptures. We were promised the Messiah. And there's this line in Acts 26, verse 8, where he says, why is it so unbelievable to anyone that God raises the dead? He's like, why, why is it so hard to wrap your brains around it? Of course God raises the dead. That line is striking to me. The line is actually humorous to me because if you step back for a minute and think about it, 
It is rather unbelievable, is it not, to think that God raises the dead. I don't know if you know this, dead people don't usually come back, okay? No matter how many episodes of the X-Files you've watched, the dead people don't usually come back. Actually, for those of you who have been Christians for a significant period of time, we're used to hearing this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. It can almost become rote. It can almost sound just like, oh, of course. Let me, let me just real quick, show of hands. How many of you have been a follower of Jesus for more than 10 years? Okay, raise your hand. Okay, that's a good one. Keep your hand raised if you've been a follower of Jesus for more than 20 years. Anybody here been a follower of Jesus more than 30 years? I'm going to stop there because then the older folks among us are going to come harass me after service. But some of you have been following Jesus for a long time. And we can forget just how unbelievable, just how absurd it is of a claim that Jesus came back from the dead. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, this really is what the entire Christian faith hinges on. If Christ truly died and truly rose from the dead, then we have to take what he said with the ultimate of importance. And if he didn't truly die and truly rise again, well, then this is frankly a colossal waste of our time, is it not? The Apostle Paul himself says so in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, we, we, this, is, we, this is foolish. Our faith is in vain and we are of all people to be pitied. Like, this is a pitiable waste of time. But friends, it should not surprise us. Yes, it's an outlandish claim. Yes, it's an even absurd claim. But it should not surprise us that God raises the dead. Why? Well, among other things, I'll give you one example, but among other things, God has written resurrection into the very fabric of nature itself. I said it's springtime. I meant it. I know we're not seeing as much evidence of it yet in the Pacific Northwest as we'd like, but think about the way that every year is a cycle of death and rebirth and death and rebirth. Think about how every day is night and then day and night and then day. Think about the life cycle of of everything, every living thing. Cells die, they divide. They die, they replicate. Martin Luther, the, the, the Protestant reformer, has this famous quote. He says, Our Lord has written the promise of resurrection, not in books alone, but in every leaf in springtime. And actually, when I was looking this week, I, I stumbled across another quote, uh, a guy named Voltaire, who was a Enlightenment, uh, French Enlightenment philosopher. He was a deist. He didn't believe that God was really very involved in the world. But even he, as a deist, recognizes. He said, it is not more surprising to be born twice than once. Everything in nature is resurrection. Just think about that for a minute. Why would we be so surprised that we're born twice and not just once? Why would we be so surprised that God does resurrection in the universe? And so here's here's what I believe. I believe that the resurrection is real. I would stake my life on it. The resurrection really happened. And if the resurrection happened, well, that changes everything. God's doing something. God's doing something new in the world. I think that um, author and scholar N.T. Wright sums it up well when he says this, the message of Easter or the message of the resurrection, is that God's new world has been unveiled in Jesus Christ and that you're now invited to belong to it. God is up to something. God is not far off and distant and disconnected. God is up to something. He's doing something. And if the resurrection really happened, well, then we're invited to jump in. We're invited to uh, participate in the work that he's doing. So just so you kind of know where we're going, next week, we're going to talk about the subject of resurrection and power. 
Next week is Palm Sunday, uh, which is a time that we look at uh, Jesus as king. And so we'll talk about power and authority. On Good Friday, we'll talk about resurrection and death. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about resurrection in the whole world. But for today, we're going to talk about resurrection and relationships. And so here's the big idea of where we're headed today. If God raises the dead, that changes everything, including our relationships with God, with others, with even ourself, and with the world. Okay? If God raises the dead, it changes everything. Do I get an amen from anybody on that this morning? Everything is changed. So we need to uh, adopt a new set of lenses at how we look at relationships. And the passage we're going to be in today is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you got your Bibles, you can read along with me, uh, starting in verse 14. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, we're starting out by looking at the relationship we have with ourselves. Paul is saying, if the resurrection happened, he says it, it did, this one died and was raised. The resurrection's right there. If this one has been raised from the dead, well, it's going to change how we think about ourselves. It's going to change how we relate to ourselves. It starts with a new belief. He says, we have concluded this. Friends, it can be really tricky to define faith. Even some of the definitions of faith in the Bible are, are not particularly helpful. You look at faith as the substance of things hoped for, the, 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 you know, the hope for things not seen. You're like, what, what, what does that mean? It's like faith is kind of hard to nail down. And faith is not having everything figured out, okay? We often say this here, if, if you're someone who has questions, if you're someone who's wrestling through some doubts or skepticisms, welcome. We're glad that you're here. And in fact, nobody here has it all figured out. I should get an amen from somebody on that, right? Nobody here has it all figured out. I've been saying this since I was in high school, but if you ever find a Bible teacher who says that they have it all figured out, run because you're in a cult, okay? We don't all have it figured out, but there are some things that we have concluded. We do not have exhaustive truth, but we do have true truth. Because God in his grace has shown us some things. The apostle Paul says, we've concluded something. We've, we've landed on something solid. Here's the solid thing that we've landed on. That Christ died for us. That he was raised again. You know, we all live out of our beliefs and our convictions. If you believe something and you don't really live it out, do you actually believe it? If you say you believe something, but then you live incongruently, if you live differently than that, well, then do you actually really believe it? I'm not asking you to, to raise your hands, but how many of you know that person? They say they believe something, but then they don't really actually live it out. From a kind of a, a sad side of this, we actually, um, I get to see this all the time in, in pastoral conversations with people where people believe lies or they believe things that are just not true. They believe things about themselves. Maybe they had, uh, you know, an abusive relationship in the past. Maybe they had parents who were hurtful to them. And they believe things like, I'm not lovable. I can't be loved. I can't experience love. Well, guess what happens? If you believe that, guess what happens in their relationships? They don't receive love. They, they, they find themselves either being rejected or hurt over and over and over again. It is absolutely uncanny how many times I have seen that happen. 
Again, don't raise your hands, but how many of you have seen somebody live their life like that? They've got some belief, they've got some conviction that they're just certain about, and it shapes everything about what they do. If someone believes that they're unlovable, they'll actually oftentimes push people away before people can have an opportunity to get close. You know how you can find out what people really believe? When things in life get really hard, how do they respond? How do they react? What do they cling to? When the proverbial stuff hits the fan, what are those things that actually become bedrock? So I ask you, friends, is the resurrection for you, is it actually bedrock for you? You may not know everything. You may have a lot of questions. You may be struggling with this, that, and the other thing. But have you concluded that Christ died and Christ rose again? Is that a, is that a motivation that actually compels you to action? I share this with you not to make myself look particularly good, but I am a terrible morning person. My wife says amen. Uh, I'm not a good morning person, but I have, God gave me a job where I have to get up early at least one morning a week. Uh, it's called Sundays. And uh, most Sunday mornings, I'm up around 5.30 a.m. And when the alarm goes off, I have a choice to say swear words under my breath, cursing the fact that the morning is here, or to remind myself I am getting up out of bed to go meet with God's people because the tomb is empty. <laughs> the tomb is really empty. Jesus really is alive. What's, what's it going to be? Is it going to just be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I believe, I wish, you know, the belief is I need sleep more than anything else? Or no, Jesus really is alive. And I'm going to get up out of the bed like Jesus got up out of the tomb. <laughs> Although <laughs> way, less, way less impacting with my life, right? Paul says the bedrock of our faith, there is, an, there is a, a conclusion that we've reached, that Christ died. But this isn't just purely intellectual. No, it, it actually gets into the motives. Look what he says. The love of Christ controls us. Some of your translations may use the word compels. This is the language of like being prodded along. Again, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What's it, what, are you, what are you pursuing? What is motivating to you? For those of you who are parents or those of you who are teachers or those of you who are uh, a boss, a, a supervisor at a, at a place of work, you ask yourself, like, how can I motivate these people? How can I find something that's valuable to them to get them to, to kind of pursue what's good for them or pursue what's good for the company or pursue what's good in the classroom setting? We're always thinking about motivation. Well, for the Christian, the resurrection now becomes a motivation and the resurrection changes our fundamental motivation from anything else. It changes it to love. The love of Christ controls us. Okay, pop quiz, biblically speaking, what is the opposite of love? What's the opposite of love? Don't be bashful. Just, just take a shot. I won't make a... Apathy. Okay, that's good. Indifference. Hate. What does First John say? Fear. Who said that? All right, good job, Elizabeth. Bonus points for you. The Bible actually would say that the opposite of love is fear. First John says, the perfect love of God drives out fear. It's been said that there are two basic motivational structures of the human heart. Love or fear. As a matter of fact, I'll give out more bonus points if anybody can think of the great British theologian who said that in the late 60s. Who said that? John Lennon, who said, yeah, 
Good job, Sharon. Good job. My man. John Lennon said it. John Lennon said, yeah, there's basically only two motives you can operate from, love or fear. And, and, and he was absolutely right. You can live out of fear. Fear, am I, am I good enough for God? Does God accept me? Does God forgive me? Does God love me? You can live out of fear of man. Do these people like me? Do these people accept me? What do they think? Am I good enough? Am I valuable enough? Or if the resurrection is true, it shakes all of that up. It gets rid of it. And it says you are loved by God and you are now free to live with a new motivation. The motivation of love. The motivation, I don't have to fear God in that way anymore. The fear of the Lord is a good thing, but in that, in that fearful sense of like, will God love me? Will God accept me? You have been loved and you have been accepted by God and the resurrection stands as proof for all of eternity that your standing before God is, is accepted. Your standing before God is adopted. The love of Christ controls us. How do we get that motivation? Well, one way is to remember that God loved you at your worst. God loved you at your worst. When Christ died on the cross, let me, let, me, let me put it this way. You and I are always more surprised by our sin than Jesus is. You ever have one of those days, you, you, you do something, you lose your temper. Yeah, okay, yes, you have. And you, you, you have that moment like, ah, how did I do that? Or how did I find myself here? And you kind of have that like moment of surprise. Even sometimes if you've, you know, done something that you're like, man, I'm really ashamed of that. Even sometimes your friends can be like, wow, I didn't see that coming, right? Jesus is never like that. Jesus is never like, Jesus is never in heaven going like, he did what? Well, had I known about that, I wouldn't have gone to the whole cross and gone through all that ordeal, right? That's not our savior. Romans tells us that while we were at our worst, Christ died for us. So you today, you today with your selfishness and your greed and your lust and your cowardice and your gossiping and all of the things that are still just there. Christ loves you. Christ died for you. That changes our motives, doesn't it? This new belief and this new motivation leads us to a new purpose. It says we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves. But we, we now live for him, Jesus, who for our sake died and was raised. We have a new ruler. We have a new master. We have a new Lord. We have a new purpose to serve him instead of serving ourselves. It's been said before. It's not a new idea that I came up with, but it's worth repeating. You and I make terrible gods. We do. You and I make terrible gods. If we live for ourselves and we live for what we can accomplish, it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, is it not? I, uh, I'm doing a little project in my backyard right now, and it's a pretty simple project. It should have taken me about two hours to do this, this project. It ended up taking me like 11 because I'm a terrible god over this dominion that is my backyard, okay? I, I need one drill bit, and I'm, I'm good to go in about two hours. I can't find the drill bit. I have to go to two different stores. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And, and the whole thing just kind of falls apart. I got it done, okay? I just want you to stop judging me, okay? I got it done, all right? <laughs> but, I did, and I did a good job too, by the way. I just want you to say, like, I, I did a good job. But do you know what? Should, should the Lord not return two, three hundred years from now? It's not going to be there. It's going to be gone. 
All this purpose, all this angst, all this frustration that I had these last couple days. I'm not accomplishing my purpose. Okay, fine. But at the end of the day, those things are transient and temporary. Living for the purpose of Jesus, that's going to last forever and ever and ever. And one day, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth with Christ, those things which were of permanent and eternal value, we'll get to sit there with Jesus. We'll get to sit there with each other and be able to look back and say, look at the good work that God did in and through us as we were focused on things that were of eternal value. So the resurrection, it, it, it messes us up inside. <laughs> you have some new beliefs, some new motives, some new purposes. But let's move out of ourselves. Let's look at what Paul says about our relationship with others. Verse 16, from now on, from now on, from this point forward, look at that language he's using. Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What does that mean? We'll get into it. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. A new creation is currently, present tense, a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When Jesus first came to the earth, as he lived as a, as a humble carpenter, and then he began teaching, and people called him rabbi, and he was a, a worker of, of good deeds, and he was a, a teacher about God, and he spoke God's word. People regarded him according to the flesh. They, thought, they said things like, isn't this Jesus? Isn't this just the son of Joseph and Mary? Isn't this the carpenter's son? They regarded him according to the flesh. But after Jesus died, and after Jesus specifically rose again, something flipped, didn't it? I think about the scene with the disciples, Thomas, the doubting disciple, the poor guy. I would, if I was there too, I would be a little skeptical, okay? And poor Thomas, he wasn't there to get to see Jesus. He's like, well, I need to see Jesus to believe that he really rose from the dead. Jesus appears. He, he feels the nail holes in his hands and in his feet, and he, he feels the, the spear wound in Jesus' side. Thomas falls to the ground, and what does he cry out? My Lord and my God. Thomas no longer regarded Jesus just merely according to the flesh. He is not just the carpenter from Nazareth. He's not just the rabbi. He is, in fact, the divine son of God. Now, it's, it's different for you and I. We are not the divine son of God. But what Paul is saying is there's something so profound that happens in the life of a believer. There's something so profound that happens when someone puts their faith in Jesus that we have to look at them through a completely different set of lenses. We no longer get to just regard someone according to the flesh. We're actually commanded to look at them as though they are a new creation. So let me ask you guys this. What are some ways that we tend to look at people just according to the flesh? What are some categories that we might put people in? Young, old, rich, poor. What, what are some other categories that we look at people through, through viewing people according to the flesh? What do you think? Their job. Okay. Oh yeah. They're, I mean, you know, you know, they, they act that way because they're just an artist. You know, they're a graphic designer. They can't show up on time. Right. What else? Male, female. Oh, you know how women are. You know how men are. I'm not saying, I'm not actually saying, I'm just saying, I know you, you look like you're going to come down after me, which again, you know how women are. No, I'm just kidding. 
I actually had, I was in a class with a gal who made some just broad sweeping. She's like, well, you know how men are. They can't commit to anything. I was like, whoa, we're, it's 2017. You can't say that. <laughs> Male or female. What else? Race. Oh, yeah. Well, you know how the Irish are. Oh, black people. Oh, white people. You know, just absolutely. We categorize people according to the flesh. I mean, that's really, by the way, by the way, this is a total side point free of charge. Thank you for bringing it up, Tom. The Bible says that we're formed out of the dust of the earth. That means our various skin tones ought to drive us to humility because we're formed out of dust, not pride. Think about that. Oh, but our, my, my color of dust skin is better than your color of dust skin. <laughs> stupid. It's just stupid on a practical level even before you get to the gospel. What else, what else do we, ca- how else do we categorize people? Race, men and women, job, huh? Religion. Oh yeah, those religious nuts. Or like how religious somebody is. They're, are they a fundamentalist or are they like a cool religious type of person? Age. Yeah, young, old, you know, young people, they can't, they can't do anything right. Or relationships, looks, physical appearance, dress, oh, man bun, hipster, right? Uh, oh, you know, they're, they're overweight or, oh, they're a, a gym. Yeah, we use all these different categories of thinking. Let me submit to you that if the Apostle Paul is correct, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then you and I have lost the right to categorize people like that. If you're a Christian, you do not get to consider people according to the flesh. That is land of death thinking. That is not new creation thinking. The Apostle Paul says, if someone is in Christ, they are right now a new creation. That means even if someone is rich, poor, white, black, whatever job, male, female, whatever those things are, that's not at the core of who they are. That's not the essence of their being. If they are a Christian brother or sister, they are a new creation. And yes, they may have remaining sin. Yes, they may do things that frustrate you. Yes, they may do things that are actually really wrong or even concerning, but you do not get the right to just view them according to the flesh because if God is at work within them, he does do good work and he says he'll be faithful to finish that on the day of Christ Jesus. And for those of you who are Christians, this means we don't get to regard uh, non-Christians in those categories either. Because what we're looking at is we're looking at somebody who needs the grace of Jesus. We, listen, Christians should not be surprised and shocked when non-Christians act like non-Christians. It is so uh, fascinating to me, especially living in a a more or less Christian-ish type of society in the United States of America for the last, you know, 300 or even more years where there's a lot of Christian values and a lot of Christian rules talked about. But there are people who are not Christians. We shouldn't be shocked when they act like non-Christians. And I would go so far as to say that for some of you, your judgmental attitude might be one of the very things keeping them from receiving the love and the grace of Christ. And if you can't say amen, you can say ouch. But some of you need to hear this. Stop being shocked that non-Christians act like non-Christians. Stop trying to force them to act like a Christian if they are not actually a new creation in Christ. And that love, that motivation of love, the love of Christ is what compels us. What if through you, God wanted to demonstrate that type of, 
get over yourself type of love that he demonstrated for us. I'm so thankful that God did not look at me in my sin and say, what a, what a piece of work. How could that guy do that thing yet again? Doesn't he know better? How could he act that way? I am so thankful that Jesus saw me in the depths of my sin and said, I am going to give him my love. Not because he deserved it or did anything to earn it, just because I'm that good. That's our God, friends. That's the kind of love you've been shown. We don't regard anyone according to the flesh. So that person in your community group who just bugs you. That person here in the church service that's just singing so off key, right? That person driving 37 miles an hour down I-5 when there's lots of pavement in front of them. I know, right? I'm, I'm getting, I'm meddling now, right? We regard no one according to the flesh. The resurrection fundamentally alters the way that we relate to others. Amen? The resurrection fundamentally alters the way that we relate to God. Verse 18, it says, all of this, all of this, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Look at how our relationship with God is fundamentally rearranged. The first thing we can see is that this, this relationship is, is, is one that's given, not gained. This is gift relationship. Look in verse 18. All this is from God. Not most of this is from God and then you do your part. No, all this is from God. Paganism, actually every single world religion, every single philosophy or system of belief basically boils down to here is how you climb the ladder to get to God. Here are the things you must do in order to be accepted by God, in order to be loved by God, in order to be forgiven, in order to achieve enlightenment, in order to uh, attain nirvana, whatever it may be, it all basically boils down to that. And there's actually a very uh, Christian-sounding version of this. This is religion. This is what you do to earn God's favor. But the gospel is completely opposite of it. It is by grace you have been saved. It is not you climbing up a ladder to get to God. It is God coming down Jacob's ladder to rescue and redeem broken people like us. This is the heart of the gospel. So, so we don't approach God with a relationship that says, I got to impress him or I have to earn something from him or I have to gain something from him. We come to God with hearts that are full of thanksgiving. Thank you for the gift that you have given to me in Christ Jesus. Our relationship with God is reconciled, not ruptured. We see in, in the garden, in the earliest pages of the Bible in Genesis, that, that when Adam and, in, Adam and Eve sinned, there was a rupture that took place in the relationship. They were separated from God. And in our sin, we are separated from God. But it says here that Jesus has, has reconciled the world to God. Jesus has reconciled the world. So our relationship is reconciled. It is. Now, now, now how we experience that on a day-to-day -day basis, that can be challenging. 
let me just ask real, you know, let's be vulnerable. Show of hands. How many of you have ever had those days where you feel like maybe God is somewhere far off? Anybody ever had one of those days? Okay, I can empathize with that. The Bible has lots to say about it, but the truth of the matter is that you are, if you are a Christian, you are reconciled to God and he is not far off and not distant. Now, there are ways that we, we struggle maybe to experience that, but it doesn't change the fundamental reality that in Christ, we've been reconciled to our Father. We've been reconciled to our Father. We're not orphans anymore. We're not aliens. We're not strangers. We're not outcasts. We are in the loving arms of our Heavenly Father. And we can see that our relationship is one of forgiveness, not fear. We're forgiven, not fearful. Think about that. It says that he's not counting their trespasses against them. One of the metaphors that the Bible uses for the gospel is that of a debt, okay? Um, I just clarify, I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but you ever had that feeling of being in debt? You ever had that credit card bill that comes in the mail and you think, oh no, I gotta pay this off. And then the next month it shows up and it's actually higher. You're deeper in debt. Jesus told a story about a man who was, who was so far in debt, it was like, you know, for you and I, it'd be like trillions of dollars, like the entire, you know, GDP of the nation. There's no way that you or I are going to dig ourselves out of trillions of dollars worth of debt. But God enters in through the person and the work of Jesus. He pays it all. The debt has been paid in full, 100% clean and clear. And so now we don't come to God with the motivation of fear. I hope I can, I can do enough. It says, not counting our trespasses against us. Is that good news to anybody? By the way, let me, this, is a, this is kind of a bad analogy, but I like it and I'm going to use it, okay? One of the pastor, one of the pastor friends of mine back in Alaska, he, he came up with this analogy. He said, what if there was an iPhone app called I Know Everything You've Ever Done? And you could actually walk up to someone and you could scan them and it would like just pull up all of their deepest, darkest secrets. Yeah. And what if somehow that found its way into the hands of the people in the production booth and they could like display it up on the screen? What would you do? You'd run, right? And you'd probably call the police because somebody's got some surveillance things that they shouldn't have, right? Russia has been here. Okay, sorry. Here's the deal. Here's the deal. That type of fear, like you feel that fear, you feel that tension. God is everywhere. All times, God sees everything. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He is omniscient. He knows all things. There is nothing that you have done, good or bad, that has escaped the eye of God. Now that causes a moment of panic, right? It should cause a moment of fear, but then we read, again, the words of Romans 5 that says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's not counting our trespasses against us. God's not sitting there with the ledger saying, oh, another bad deed, another bad deed, another bad deed. Need to punish them some sort of, you know, Christianized version of karma. No, God has forgiven you. How, if you really believed that, if you really internally believed that, how would that shape the way you lived your life? That you're forgiven by God, that you're accepted by God. I would submit to you, that the more we focus that we're forgiven by God, the more that we're loved by God, we're accepted by God, the less likely we are going to sin. Because <laughs> sin loses its power. It loses its attractiveness. It doesn't taste good anymore. Because we've tasted of true love. We've tasted of true forgiveness. Just a thought. 
So our relationship with God is fundamentally rearranged. And then lastly, our relationship with the world is fundamentally rearranged. If the resurrection is true, our relationship with the whole world is fundamentally changed. Verse 20, therefore, therefore, because of all this, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Would you say through us? Would you look around the room one more time? Through us. Like for reals, like look around. Like I don't know if that's encouraging to you or discouraging. Like you look around the room. God says, here's my plan A to share this reconciling. It's us. It's those people in your community group who just, they don't really seem to get it. It's those people who post things on Facebook. You're like, I need to hide them before I lose my salvation, right? That was a joke, by the way. You can't lose your salvation. (laughs) But like, think about it, okay? Like I'm here, I'm in the room, I'm present. There was another service. They looked very similar to you. Like this this is God's plan A to reconcile the world. We are his ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God for our sake and the heart of the gospel for our sake. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, the one who knew no sin, the one who was perfect. God treated him as our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There it is. There's the heart of the gospel. And that's the heart of our message. Now, some people can can not take the gospel story far enough. And we, we often hear things like, we say like, Jesus wants to save your soul. That is not untrue, that's just not the entirety of the truth. Or we say things like, we need to trust in Jesus so we can go to heaven when we die. That's not untrue, it's just not the entirety of the truth. The entirety of the truth is Jesus wants to save your soul and your body. The entirety of the truth is that, yes, we will go to heaven when we die, but upon the return of Jesus, there will be a final resurrection, and God says that in Christ, he is making all things new again. How many things new? All things. The end of the story is not us floating off to heaven. The end of the story is the city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven, coming to earth, crashing into earth, and God and God's people enjoying one another for all of eternity in a restored heaven and a restored and renewed earth, free from sin, free from sickness, free from death itself. Is that exciting to anyone here today? That is what the resurrection promises us. And so what that means is we cannot have an attitude of the world's just going to burn, let it go to hell, and I'm going to go retreat into my Christian enclave. Okay? There's a a, a scholar, a professor at Westminster Seminary, a current scholar, current author, Harvey Kahn, and he uses an analogy that I found very helpful. He says this, perhaps the best analogy to describe all of this is that of a model home. He's been watching Arrested Development. On a tract of earth's land purchased with the blood of Christ, Jesus, the kingdom developer, has begun building new housing. And as a sample of what will be, he has erected a model home of what will eventually fill the urban neighborhood. Now he invites the world into that model home to take a look at what will be. The church is the occupant of that model home, inviting neighbors into its open door to Christ. 
Evangelism is when the signs are put up saying, come in, look around. In this model home, we live out our new lifestyle as citizens of the heavenly city that one day will come. Is that helpful to anyone? Is it encouraging to anyone? Is that frightening to anyone? I don't know if you know this. Um, maybe you haven't been a part of the church for a while, but sometimes in the church we have uh, problems. Sometimes in the church we don't always live out the values of the kingdom perfectly, let's say. Invite people to come in. Like, yeah, come in, look around. But are we really actually modeling the values of the kingdom? This is encouraging. This is good news that, that God's setting up a, a, a new neighborhood, as it were, that God's restoring the, the earth. But then we come in and we're like, oh, yeah, but go find a different church because they're a better part of the model home. We're still working some things out. Still under construction. Here's the deal. Jesus instructed us to pray that God's kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself told us to pray that, did he not? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that we have a fundamentally new approach to the world, okay? So here's what you can do. Number one, you can, you can despise the world, okay? We can have that kind of religious approach. The world is terrible. The world is bad. The world is broken. Humans do so many wrong things. We just need to step back and keep ourselves holy and pure and watch the world burn. By the way, there is a secular version of that now, by the way. It's not exclusive to the Christian faith. Secularists do this as well, particularly the new atheists. They'll say some shocking things like, oh, we just need, we just need humanity to die out so the world can get back to being healthy again. But this is not a Christian value. This is not a Christian belief in how we approach the world. But then neither is just compromising and assimilating to the world, just becoming like the world. Some of you look at the world and say, well, the world does this, the world thinks this, the world believes that, and so let's just do that. Let's just adopt that. The world believes this about men and women. The world believes this about power. The world believes this about relationships. The world believes this about uh, you know, morality and behavior. And so we just adopt the practices of the world without recognizing that we're citizens of a different kingdom. Friends, should the Lord tarry, should Jesus not return soon, there will come a day when the United States of America will be no more. And I'm thankful for this nation. I'm thankful for the freedoms and the rights and the privileges we have. But the United States of America does not hold our primary allegiance. Amen, Christians? Amen? If you you go back in time and told the ancient Romans that a day was coming when Rome would be no more, they might have a hard time believing you. But guess what's not here anymore? Rome! Okay, well, like the city is still there. But it's Italy, and it's very different, and they, they, they lost World War II, and it's just very different, okay? The Roman Empire does not exist anymore. The United States of America will not exist for long. We, we cannot just become like the world. We can't just assimilate to what the world does. We can either we can hate the world, or we can assimilate to the world, or we can do what Jesus says to love the world. John 3.16, for God so what? Loved the world. That he gave his unique one and only son that whoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. So friends, let me ask you, those neighbors that you drive past that, that annoy you a lot, those coworkers, that boss, those family members, those extended family members, do you care that they don't know Jesus? Does it trouble your soul that they're lost? And do you love them enough 
to share this message of reconciliation with them. We don't get to just be just like them, and we certainly don't get to just let them drift off on their own. We've been entrusted the message of reconciliation. If the resurrection is true, if Jesus really got up out of the grave, it completely rearranges how we relate to the world. Amen? Let me close with this thought. And I know I'm a preacher and that doesn't really mean anything, but I really mean it today. Some of you need to have your relationship with God rearranged by the resurrection. Some of you here today, you either, you're not a Christian and you know it, and so God is inviting you, be reconciled through Jesus, the one who died and rose again for you. Or some of you might think that you're a Christian, but really what you are is religious. You're trying to do good works. You're trying to do good deeds to remain in God's good graces. And today I invite you, give up that, that, that futility and receive this grace that we've been talking about, this gift from God that Jesus died and rose again, that we might be reconciled to the Father. It's not of works. It's not something that you do. And in a moment when we pray, if, if, if that's you, you can just pray a very simple prayer. God, I, I, I need your grace. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to live uh, for my own purposes and strength. I just want to live for you. And I want you to take my life as it is, broken, flaws, failures, everything, and I want to hand it to you. Some of you need to have your relationship with yourself rearranged by the resurrection today. Some of you believe lies about yourself. Some of you, you were told messages as a child or in a relationship. You were told things so many times that you've internalized them. Things like, I'm worthless. I'm not worth being loved. I'm a, I'm a piece of trash. I, I always will do this. I'll never have love. Friends, today is the day that the resurrection comes in and says, not anymore. You're not going to believe those lies about yourself anymore. You belong to Jesus. And what he says about you is more true than what other people have said about you or those lies you've believed. Some of you need to have your relationships with others impacted by the resurrection. You know, the Bible says, we're going to take communion here in a moment. The Bible actually says that if you have offense with your brother, you should leave, go be reconciled, and then come to the altar. I think that principle holds true for communion, that you should not celebrate communion today if there is some relationship where you're still viewing somebody according to the flesh. You have an offense that you, for your part, there's something that you need to do. Obviously, sometimes there's, there's things that you just have no control over. The book of Romans says, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. So if you have ought with somebody, if you have an offense with somebody that you need to go make right, I would invite you to abstain from communion today before you have an opportunity to go do that. And lastly, some of you need your relationship with the world rearranged. You've either just written it all off or you've said, hey, I'm just going to be like the world. Today, Christ is calling you to love the world and to share this message of reconciliation. Let me just pray because I want to allow you that time to let the Holy Spirit stir in your heart what it is that he wants to do. Let's go before God right now together. Father, Lots of different ways that we could seek to respond. Lots of different things we may need to do. And God, I'm asking and I'm praying today that you would be so gracious as to send your Holy Spirit. Would you stir in our hearts? God, some of us need to have our relationship with you resurrected. God, maybe some even here in this room have just wandered. They feel like they're far away from you. And God, so would you bring them close even right now? 
God, some of us have relationships with other people that we know we need to go address. Some of us need to look inside and figure out what lies we're believing and living out of. God, whatever it is, would you let your resurrection power do its work in our hearts and our minds right now? As we enter into this time of response with singing and celebrating the Lord's table, God, would you draw us closer to you? Would you rearrange us? Would you rearrange our categories? Even now, God, even now in this room, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake, amen. Friends, I wanna invite you to begin in our time of response. There may be other things you need to do after you leave here, but for, for this time now, we're gonna respond in a few ways. The first is to the giving of our tithes and offerings. If you're a guest or a visitor, you're not obliged to give. Uh, please don't feel um, obligated or awkward in that sense. But if you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to give as worship, to say, God, I trust in you and I wanna give of my finances to support the work of the ministry, but to support, uh, to support this church, but also uh, ministries that we're partnered with around the world. We just invite you to give generously. We'll invite our younger students class in to join us for this time of worship and response. And while they're collecting the offering, I'm gonna read some discussion questions to help us this week in our small group, our community groups. How is the resurrection of Jesus surprising and shocking to you, regardless of how long you've been a follower of Jesus? Number two, consider Paul's statement in Acts 26, eight. How does the resurrection make perfect sense? How should we not be shocked? Shocked, but not shocked. That's, that's a good Christian approach to the resurrection. Number three, the church is a model home of the kingdom to come. How is this analogy inspiring to you? How is it challenging and how is it helpful? And number four, which of your relationships with God, with others, self, the world, which of those are in need of Christ's resurrection power and why? And how is God calling you to respond? A couple things to pray about. Pray that we would experience more of Christ's resurrection power in our relationships and that we'd seek to share it with those uh, who don't yet know Jesus. And number two, just as always, pray that God's will, uh, his kingdom would come, his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. It's always a good prayer to pray. They're gonna begin passing out the elements for communion in just a moment. I'll invite you to hold on to those. We'll take that together. And I wanna read from 1 Corinthians 11 as we do to, to set ourselves up for this celebration of the Lord's table. It says this, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. So this bread we're about to receive, this is that gift we're talking about. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, the new way of relating to God through the blood of Jesus, not by works, not by efforts, but just purely by his grace. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ died, but Christ also rose again. For as often as you eat the bread, you proclaim his death till he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Friends, I invite you to, if you want to just sit for a moment to hold before the Lord. Our musicians are gonna come and lead us in a, in a time of singing. But before you even stand to your feet and, and begin singing with us, I just invite you to reflect, examine your heart. God, where do I need to repent? Where do I need to trust in you more truly, more greatly? 
And then when you're ready, I'll invite you to, to take of the bread, drink of the cup, and then stand to your feet and sing with us. Let me do this. Let me pray. And as they're finishing handing out the elements, we'll, we'll pray together and then we'll begin our time of singing in response. God, we thank you for your grace and we thank you for your goodness. And God, we thank you about the way that the resurrection just rearranges and impacts all of our relationships. God, I ask and pray right now, fundamentally, more than anything else, our relationship with you would be shaped by the resurrection. We do not serve a dead religious founder. We don't serve a distant God. We serve a resurrected Savior, one who is present with us now. Even as we eat of this bread and drink of the cup, Jesus, would you make your presence known among us? Even as we sing, would we, would we sing like people who really believe that our Savior is risen? Fill our lips with your praises. Fill our hearts with your joy. May we respond to Jesus now. In his name we pray. And everyone said, amen.